0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. I'm Duncan Rayburn, and I'm interrupting the Exodus series again to offer something of a reflection on some of the stuff that has been occupying my thoughts lately. As you will see, uh, some of this has actually had an influence on how I've been walking through Exodus with you. Some of the processes of thinking... uh, have actually had an impact on, on what I've done in other areas of my life. I suppose everything uh, bleeds together eventually. I've been busy preparing for a project for my second year students that revolves around ideation, which is the art of generating creative ideas uh, that hopefully shift perceptions. I think that's the the point of generating creative ideas. Actually, the project begins on the very day that this podcast will be released. So, While I'm exposing the world to this stuff, I'm also (laughs) trying to uh, get my students familiar with it. And I'm hoping that it inspires them. And one of the exercises I'll be taking my students through is that of using Aesop's famous fables to explore ideation. Aesop wrote them many, many years ago. Uh, This is, I can't even remember how how long BC, but I think it's something like 500 years or maybe earlier than that. Uh, So they're really old stories. And... What I've discovered is that if you're predisposed to creative thinking, one of the best ways to generate ideas is to work with a source and then to use that source to inspire lateral thinking through a basic process of, of engaging associative memory, which is basically what creative thinking really is. It's associative memory. Actually, if you are not predisposed to thinking creatively, this would be a great way to get into it. Generally speaking, our minds are really lazy, so it's essential to find ways to disrupt our usual patterns of thinking in order to perceive the world a little more clearly. If we keep on defaulting to only one way of perceiving, we are bound to neglect important interpretive possibilities along the way. So what I want to do here is walk you through a process. I want to start though by quoting a passage that I recently read Uh, from Nietzsche. It's from his 38th notebook, which was written uh, in July of 1885. Nietzsche has an amazing perspective on on some psychological matters, and the following passage is is particularly illuminating. I really like it. So uh, this is what he writes. In the form in which it comes, a thought is a sign with many meanings, requiring interpretation, or more precisely, an arbitrary narrowing and restriction before it finally becomes clear It arises in me. Where from? How? I don't know. It comes independently of my will, usually circled about and clouded by a crowd of feelings, desires, aversions, and by other thoughts, often enough scarcely distinguishable from a willing or feeling. It is drawn out of this crowd, cleaned, set on its feet, watched as it stands there, moves about, all this at an amazing speed, yet without any sense of haste. Who does this? I don't know, and I am certainly more observer than author of the process. Then its case is tried. The question posed, what does it mean? What is it allowed to mean? Is it right or wrong? The help of other thoughts is called on. It is compared. In this way of thinking, there is a judge, an opposing party, even an examination of the witness, which I am permitted to observe for a while. Only a while, to be sure. Most of the process, it seems, escapes me. I really love this passage uh, since it, it reads like a kind of biography of a thought or an idea. It's, it's as if Nietzsche is watching a thought appear and then wondering a bunch of things while that thought appears. And I think this captures something of what happens when insights are sparked within our minds. Suddenly, out of nowhere, there's a kind of clarity that that arrives that was not there before. For, for those of you who are strong in what Jung refers to as introverted intuition, you'll be familiar with this experience. It's the experience of, of suddenly just seeing the whole picture at once, and it's 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 wonderful. Um, actually, it will be useful to begin with a brief explanation of the nature of an insider, a kind of definition, since I think this is at the heart of all creative thinking but it's also at the heart of what I want to explore here. It's it's what helps us to understand understanding itself. So from my own reading of Bernard Lonergan's book, Insight, which is a rather monstrous book, uh, but crazy profound, amazing book, um, I've picked 10 qualities of insight that are quite helpful to keep in mind. First, insight happens quickly but only when the conditions are right. Uh, We have to have the space and time to be able to arrive at insights. We need to take time to contemplate uh, things. Second, insight collects and collates. It, It puts together what was not assumed to be together. This is why it is an insight and not just an observation, although some observations are obviously insightful. Third, Insight creates a moment of decision, a choice, in its creator or in the audience that receives the insight. Fourth, an insight sees the universal in the particular. It is true for the individual and the group in this way. Fifth, insight relies on understanding and memory, and it's cumulative. Sixth, insight grasps a pattern and it serves a purpose, so it has some kind of a function seven insight is a permanent acquisition unless you suffer from terrible memory loss uh, eight insight is a personal acquisition what it, what this means is that while it can be mediated by someone a teacher for instance no one can have an insight on your behalf it's something that that you have to you have to put the pieces together and make it your own before it can really be called an insight for you Nine, insight can be resisted and avoided. And I think a lot of people do spend a rather inordinate amount of time (laughs) avoiding insight. And finally, tenth, there is a disproportion between the before and the after of an insight. Part of what makes an insight what it is, is that it renders the familiar in a new light. But now finding an insight is a tricky thing thing. The world seems to be rather predictable, and our minds tend to have a a tendency to want to make it predictable. And the trouble with this is that we might assume that what we have understood is something that we have really understood, rather than uh, being something that is only partially understood, which is always the case. So my challenge to you is to go out and look for insights, to seek insights out and, and be open to them showing up for you, One of the best ways to do this is to look at things that were composed to spark insights, things like philosophy or mythology or proverbs or parables, fables, Bible stories, and so on. What I'm going to run through here is just one fable, but hopefully you see the value of this for reading not only other texts, but the world itself. I think we can look at the world as a a kind of playground for insight making and insight finding. Why I've picked one of Aesop's fables is that fables tend to be viewed as fairly straightforward texts. The so-called moral of the story is often stated at the end of the thing, which means that we we tend to maybe read a story and then decide not to look any further. But sometimes understanding the moral of the story is precisely how to miss the insights that the story is trying to deliver to us. We'll reduce the story to being nothing but a vehicle by which we arrive at a rather predictable accepted moral claim. But then the question would have to be, why not just state the moral claim? Why Why go through all this effort to tell a story, to concoct a story? Well, the reason we need the story is that a story is always about way more than just one thing. It's not about reduction, but about opening a way to engage with a surplus of meanings. This is appropriate since creativity and insight extraction, or what I'm calling insight extraction in particular, is about meaning making. So I want to look at the story of the goose that laid a golden egg. I'll read through it and then I'll take you through a process of interpreting it. The interpretation, of course, is just one of quite a number of possibilities, and I'm pretty sure I've explored this only almost in a far too limited way. So I would suggest that you play with it too and see what you come up with on your own. So here's the story. A man and his wife had the good fortune to possess a goose that laid a golden egg every day. Lucky though they were, they soon began to think they were not getting rich fast enough and imagining the bird must be made of gold inside, they decided to kill it in order to secure the whole store of precious metal at once. But when they cut it open, they found it was just like any other goose. Thus, they neither got rich all at once, as they had hoped, nor enjoyed any longer the daily addition to their wealth. Much wants more and loses all. Now, the funny thing is, the story, of course, is already dealing in the fantastical a goose laying a golden egg, so it's really absurd. When you encounter something totally absurd, there must be more to it. Uh, There must be some sort of deeper meaning that it's trying to get to. Um, So many, many of you obviously know this story. It's a very familiar story that I'm sure you know, you probably heard at some point when you were a kid. And so it is very easy because it is familiar to jump to the obvious conclusion, namely that this story is about how greed doesn't pay off. And that that is true. I think that's part of what the story is getting to, but it seems to me to be too much of a reduction. So, let's play with it. The first step in playing with it is to see the story as a cluster of subcategories. These subcategories operate within the purview of a number of invisible categories that have yet to be discovered. That's going to be step two which we'll get to. So the first step is going to just be to name the subcategories that we want to work with. I'm going to only select seven subcategories from the story. Uh, There are more subcategories than these, but I've just selected seven because I think it's a neat number, right? Um, And it'll save us time. So subcategory one is man and his wife. Subcategory two is a goose that laid a golden egg every day. That seems like a very long (laughs) subcategory, and that's because it is. Subcategory 3 is not getting rich fast enough. Subcategory 4 is they decided to kill it. Subcategory 5 is they cut it open. Subcategory 6 is they found it was just like any other goose. And the last subcategory is much wants more and loses all. You may feel like these are very weird subcategories because these subcategories contain subcategories of their own. Why have I selected man and his wife together, for instance, rather than as separate categories? Well, my main reason is that picking larger groups helps us to see which structures are at play in the idea, and that sort of helps us to, to get at the meaning behind it. Structures actually already point to a particular direction and therefore meaning. Uh, noticing the structures is helpful for grasping a pattern, which, as I've said, is, is what an insight is about. Step two is to look for a larger category within which the subcategory that you're selecting fits. This is a process of abstraction. So you work from the concrete to the less concrete, to the abstract. So our first subcategory, man and his wife, might fit within a few categories. First, they conveniently fall within the category of people, which is part of the category or biological frame of higher primate, although that one is maybe not going to be so so essential for this reading. They are clearly part of the categories of relationship and partnership as well. Even if we don't know how good or bad their relationship is, we trust that their designation as being together holds, at least for this story. They are also subjects with particular hopes and desires and ambitions. That's how the story frames them. So in generating that abstraction, we find that there's a kind of complexity to them. Let's assume that despite being rendered in fairly two-dimensional terms, they are not simple-minded people. Maybe the man is a stamp collector and his wife is an avid bird watcher. But for the sake of the story and for extracting insights, Moving towards sub-subcategories is less important than it is uh, to move to bigger categories within which the subcategories work. I hope that actually comes across um, well enough. It's a, I realize, it, a rather strange way of thinking. The larger categories are more instructive than the smaller ones. That's my main point. The second subcategory I've picked is the idea of a goose that laid a golden egg every day. Now, this fits into a few categories, again, uh, like, for instance, at the most general level, the category of a thing that produces a thing consistently. The goose itself then becomes something that, with effort and in keeping with its nature, is predictably generative and creative. There is a process involved here, too. The goose, which is this useful thing or process, produces golden eggs. In other words, some kind of valuable or useful or meaningful outcome. You, you may start to get a feeling from this that I'm interpreting stories like poetry. So actually interpreting poetry is, is a helpful uh, kind of comparative to, to what we're doing here. The third subcategory is the idea of not getting rich fast enough. This is actually a surprisingly loaded subcategory since it implies the category of greed, but also the category of something hoped for that has not been achieved. So that could apply to many things in the world that you're familiar with. Or the category of some kind of process that contains a disjunction between the means and its ends. I realize that this is a bit complex, but the process is helpful. And we just have three subcategories to go. You'll see how this plays out when we finally get to some insights. Uh, The fourth subcategory is they decided to kill it. This is an interesting thing in itself because already halfway through the fable we have an indication that things are not going well for the goose, whatever it might represent. The subcategory they decided to kill it fits within the categories they made a choice to put an end to it or they decided to halt the process or hit pause. This fourth category fits really well with the next two subcategories, namely they cut it open and They found it was just like any other goose. First the subcategory, they cut it open. Well, this fits into the general category of placing something under scrutiny or deciding to investigate what had previously not been understood. This is an act of instrumental reason or of looking for the deeper reasons or meaning of a thing, but only in keeping with one possible kind of analysis. And consequently, this shuts down all kinds of alternatives. This is a very interesting thing. Maybe they could have dealt with the, the goose differently. They could have got a vet to do an x-ray, for instance. But nope, they, they decided to kill the goose, and they, therefore they acted in a way that was rather moronic. There's already a hint of an insight here that uh, considering action beforehand is a generally a good idea. Already here, you can start to see that meaning is starting to, to leak out of the fable like water from a broken jar. The obvious way of reading the story is, is no longer possible. They find that the goose is just like any other goose. In other words, by by putting an end to it, they are in fact considering its inner workings, considering its real meaning, but in such a way that it, it has kind of ended up being a dead thing rather than a living thing, something that was terminated instead of being alive or being allowed to be alive. And and so its ability to produce life, since eggs are subcategories within the category of life-giving things, has been put to an end. After all of this, the, the magical thing has been annihilated. Its magic has gone. When the partnership man and wife, obviously, which is now obviously not a good partnership, a partnership maybe with with too much agreement and too little dissent. When this partnership had properly understood the, the thing, they discovered that its mystery was not nearly that mysterious. This is a bit like trying to make a magic trick more magical by telling people how it's done, or trying to make a joke funnier by explaining it. The goose ends up dying. It it It's too late. The kid knows that you killed the canary, and now he's m- miserable. Sorry, that probably came out of the blue. That's a reference to The Prestige. If you haven't seen that movie, you should go and see it. So we're nearly there. You'll see soon, I hope, why I'm going through this very detailed, possibly laborious analytical process of abstraction. The seventh and last subcategory I've chosen is that of Much Wants More and Loses All. It would be a problem by now just to assume that this is about greed alone. It is about that, but it says more than that because it fits within the general category of something taken to an extreme that reverses on itself, or maybe the category of irony, which is the idea that what goes forth as A returns as non-A, which is a really interesting way of exposing lies, by the way, is, is actually announcing the lie in such a way that it's It's corruption, I guess, inner corruption is exposed. We could obviously keep going with this process of abstraction, but let's move on to step two, which is much quicker than step one, thankfully. It involves reading the larger categories that we've now unpacked back into the original story. This creates a very bizarre abstract frame of a story, Uh, but it can also be profoundly useful for understanding layers of meaning. I'm going to, for the sake of brevity, just select a few of my general categories that I've I've come up with here um, back into the story, but it should be obvious that I could have selected different ones, and the result would have been different insights. I've also added a few minor adjustments to the language of the story, as you'll see, uh, to allow it to be as abstract as possible. It's a very strange thing to do, but it, it creates quite an interesting effect. So here is the story retold. A people in partnership had the good fortune to have within their dominion a thing or process that produced a favourable outcome. (laughs) Lucky though they were, they soon began to think that the thing or process was not performing in keeping with their expectations. They had conceived of the thing or process as being somehow magical, but they decided to place it under scrutiny, which unfortunately brought the whole thing or process to a halt. Unfortunately, too late, they discovered that they had made more of the thing or process than what what was in keeping with its actual nature. Thus, they had destroyed the very means by which they could have secured a favorable outcome. They had acted, in other words, in such a way that they had undermined their very aims. Sometimes, therefore, our motivation for something might be the very thing that ensures that the thing does not come to pass. So <laughs> there's lots of uses of the word "thing," and it's very vague. Um, but now that we have a very weird, vague frame of a story, we can actually have fun populating the story with other associations, and that is step three. We can, for example, unpack some different key ideas that the story makes known to us. So, for instance. The thing or process might be a kind of system, something like a particular bureaucratic process. But there are people connected to this process who want to improve it. So they decide to sabotage the process, not intentionally necessarily, but in an aim to make it run smoother, to get more golden eggs, so to speak. The result, however, is that they have effectively thrown a spanner into their ontological works. They have tried to make it work better and have ended up making it worse than ever. In this case, the story then is not just about greed, but about being careful not to tamper with things that have actually been working. The idiom, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, comes to mind. Sometimes, by throwing the bathwater out, we end up throwing the baby out too. By killing the magic, so to speak, we end up with both a dead canary and a boy not entertained, to (laughs) reference the prestige again. The story also becomes about self-sabotage, which is not something that is obvious uh, if you haven't really gone through a process of of abstraction. Often, it is suggested in, in an attempt to help ourselves, we end up doing ourselves harm. Now think about how that fits with your own experiences and observations. Suddenly, the fable then isn't just about two greedy people, but it's about your life and how you live it. It can actually illuminate things in dark places that you you hadn't been paying attention to. Then there's another possibility. Maybe the goose in question is a particular ideology. Well, then maybe we need to make the ideology go away. Instead of doing this, though, some people in partnership, you know, in their collective, might do their best to dispose of the whole thing. In the process. They end up not only destroying the bad, the slowness of its inner working, say, or the tendency of the ideology to to impose views on certain people that you know it shouldn't impose things on. Rather, what happens is it also destroys any possibility of the good. I'm, I mean, that's very abstract, but you could apply this directly to something like the Marxist um, attempt to dismantle, uh, say, capitalism. Instead of um, regarding capitalism as a, a very intricate thing with very complex inner workings that may have you know good and bad results, the the intention is to destroy the whole thing. Well, maybe that's just going to end up killing the goose and destroying the, the very possibility of something good coming out. Instead of figuring out, well, maybe there's a better way to to work this out, to fix the inner workings of the system rather than destroying the system. Uh, completely. This reminds me of Viktor Frankl's notion of paradoxical intention, which is the idea that sometimes the motivation itself is what ensures that the outcome is jeopardized. So, for example, as in a Freudian sort of case of of the so-called frigid woman, people who struggle to have pleasure during sex might start focusing on having pleasure during sex, and the result of that will be, well, that they don't, um, it's it's only when their aim becomes not worrying about how much pleasure they're having that they actually start to really enjoy themselves. This applies to other things too. If you aim for happiness, for example, you are probably only going to make yourself miserable. Happiness is always a byproduct. It's the magical result of taking care of the goose, so to speak. Uh, another example of paradoxical intention would be the idea here of of being overly controlling about the details. Being in control is one thing, but over-control is likely to lead to a total loss of control. And that sort of references the the, the moral of the story, which, which is, you know, when you take something to an extreme, it actually reverses on itself. If you try to over-control something, you lose control. Other insights I came up with um, by reflecting on the story, both in terms of the abstract and the concrete, are as follows. You'll see that some some of them are pretty plain, but at the very least you can also um, recognize that more has come from the story than just the obvious moral of the story by me just running through a quick process of abstraction. I say quick, by the way, because it took me a lot less time to actually go through this than, than it's actually taking me to explain it, which is very interesting. So the first... Insight is, it's possible to perceive the miraculous where there is, in fact, only something ordinary, and by extension, it's possible to overlook the miraculous in pursuit of the ordinary. The second uh, insight is, the perception of control or understanding is not equal to actual control or understanding. Third is the insight that sometimes we destroy what is most beneficial to us in service of the wrong ideal. The fourth insight is that greed misdirects our attention. That should be obvious. I think that uh, vir- virtuelessness, if that's a real thing, uh, being without virtue is a way of misdirecting our attention. Idolatry is, is misperception itself. Uh, the fifth insight is that ingratitude leads to a kind of loss of reality. So here I'm taking the goose as a kind of symbol of, of reality itself. The sixth insight is that sometimes our scrutiny is the thing that destroys what ought to be valued. And then the, the last insight is that by overextending anything, we can undermine it. So that's really a kind of summary of the detail of me going through a three-step process. Um, and the aim of that is to extract insights. Of course, there's a kind of isojetical gesture going on here, too. We're reading in to the story. But... It, it's a reading in that is congruent with the actual structure of the parable. So we first find larger categories, then we read those larger categories back into the original context or the original text and its subcategories. And then we start to think about the possibilities of meaning opened up by this process of working uh, between the concrete and the abstract. In the process, we're actually going to start to really see the story. Yes, it's about greed, as I've said, but it's also about desiring an end beyond a particular means, or paradoxical intention, or putting an end to what is beloved for all the wrong reasons, or any number of other things that that we've started to see. When you've worked through a similar process to what I've presented here, you start to gain a really good understanding of what kind of meanings are possible within a particular text. Not to say that every meaning was consciously intended by the author, it probably wasn't, but the multiple interpretations that are possible in reading the text in this way are still very much, and this is important, congruent with the intention of the, the text itself. There are, of course, many ways of being creative, of provoking and assisting with creative thinking, but I found that one of the best ways of thinking through creative problems is what I presented to you here, which is category expansion by means of an analogical thinking process, which I've, I've also um, discussed on this podcast before. There's certainly, as I hope this very provisional incomplete picture I've painted ought to suggest, a chance that we'll be able to get more out of the world if we start to see it in this way we may even start to see it more clearly and ourselves more clearly which is obviously something that's very important to me uh, so there you go I, I really hope you've enjoyed this little detour into a very different mode of thinking thank you very much um, for listening in uh, take care everyone cheers